Welcome to our uh, Care and Compassion Weekend. This is a great weekend for us as we kind of highlight what God is doing around the world through Bridgeway and some of our global partners. So uh, really glad to have you here. And I just have the great privilege, my name is Paul Tomey, to speak tonight and to share from the scriptures. And uh, so we're going to dive in. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn to the book of Acts. His name was Oral Leonard Hershiser IV. I know, kind of one of those names, right? Uh, he was a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers in the 1980s. And, uh, and Oral was a pretty good pitcher, but he was more like mediocre. He wasn't a great pitcher early in his career. And uh, he struggled oftentimes when he would pitch in those baseball games for the Dodgers. Uh, and one particular day, he happened to be pitching, and uh, he was struggling. I mean, he was having a hard time. He was getting behind batters. He, uh, he just, his whole mental framework was tough. But he had one great thing about him, and that is a tremendously competitive spirit. So Tommy Lasorda, his manager, decided to call time, and uh, he walked out to the pitcher's mound where Hershiser was, and, uh, and he just began to talk to him, trying to calm him down, like, how's it going? What's happening? Uh, how are you feeling? He's like, oh, man, I'm struggling, and he would always, you know, just, I mean, he would still want to keep going. I think I can get the next few batters, and uh, just a great conversation that would have together, but it wasn't the, the, the best. And Lasorda kind of was watching what was happening in Hershiser. And he said, you know what? He goes, I'm not going to call you Oral anymore. He said, that's a sucky name. He said, I'm going to call you Bulldog. He says, because you're a bulldog. And he says, and I really believe that you're going to come in here and you're going to get these batters out. I don't know what happened, but something clicked inside of Oral Hershiser that particular uh, baseball game. And he went on to have one of the most amazing years a pitcher has ever had in the major leagues. In fact, he set a record for having 59 consecutive scoreless innings. It's almost unheard of uh, in Major League Baseball that anyone would have something like that. He went on to lead the Dodgers to the championship in 1988 there. He became the, the MVP of the, the uh, championship series, became the uh, MVP of the World Series. He became uh, he, uh, the Cy Young Award winner that year. I think he even won a Golden Glove, which means he was the best defensive pitcher. Um, amazing kind of, and that launched him on a career that would span the, the, all, of, all of 12 years and enter the Hall of Fame. It's an amazing story, but what it highlights is simply this, the power of vision. The power of vision. Just the change in that name made him rethink about himself differently. And you know what? Almost nothing happens that's worthwhile without the power of vision. And that's true not only in an individual sense, but in a collective sense. Today, what we're going to do as we study the scriptures is we're going to explore this collective aspect of vision. And uh, what we want to do is we want to do that through unwrapping the soul of a New Testament church. And I believe this, down to the very bottom of my soul, that if we could connect with the heart and the soul of this particular New Testament church, it would revolutionize how we see our mission in the world that God has given to us as a church, not only here at Bridgeway, but for the capital C church all across the globe. And so if you have a Bible, uh, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 11, because that's where the story of this church is found. Now, I want to give you a little backstory real quick that'll set the stage for this. Um, remember, in the book of Acts, the book of Acts is about the birth of the church. It was Jesus who kind of hatched the idea of the church, but in, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit bursts this church, and uh, through the apostles that were gathered together... Uh, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit fills them, and they begin speaking God's word boldly. And a huge revival occurs among the people who are listening from all over the world. Right? 5,000 people 
end up responding to a message that Peter gives. And all of a sudden, the faith just literally explodes in the city of Jerusalem there. And there is a dynamic kind of vitality that's going on in that church. And whenever we think about modeling sometimes, if you talk to, to Christians, modeling a church, we're like, yeah, the church at Jerusalem, because there was a lot of great things happening in that church. It was tremendous fellowship, and they're deepening themselves in the apostles' word, and all kinds of things were going on, and God was doing signs and wonders. But a few years in, something happened to that church. The church at Jerusalem jumped the shark. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before, but it's a phrase that was coined in the 1980s around the sitcom Happy Days, that 1980s sitcom Happy Days. And it's a, a, a term that a TV executives developed to describe the very precise moment that a, a program begins to, its downward spiral into irrelevance. And it comes from the idea that in that episode that, uh, you know, Arthur Fonzarelli, a.k.a. the Fonz, decides he's going to jump a shark in Long Beach Harbor. And TV executives from that point on said that the, that the, the, the series Happy Days just spun totally out of control and downward to where nobody was even really watching it anymore. Well, that's what had happened to the church at Jerusalem. They had become irrelevant. The movement had begun to stall out. They had become ingrown. They had great times together. They were kind of a holy huddle. They had great fellowship with one another. But they just kind of all stayed together in Jerusalem. And I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus, before he left, had given his church a great commission. He said, as you're going, I want you to go into all the world, and I want you to disciple all the nations. Not just Jews, all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And he says, and then I want you to never forget this. I am with you even to the end of the age. They had had this great mission, but they just stayed together in this nice little huddle in Jerusalem. And they had begun to become very irrelevant. They were just a small little Jewish sect that was kind of operating outside the lines. So God allows something to happen. God allows a persecution to take place in Jerusalem in connection with Stephen. And after Stephen is martyred, the church is scattered all throughout Palestine, particularly in the northern section. And as the church scatters, we pick up the story in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 19. Because the epicenter of the church moves from the church at Jerusalem to another church in the book of Acts. And that's the church that I want us to look at in Acts chapter 11. And again, believe this, if we could connect with the soul of this church, I think it will change us. I think it will change the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see God's mission in the world, and will begin to align us much more closely with what God is doing in the world around us. So we pick up the story in Acts chapter 11, verse 19. It says, now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to nobody except Jews. So these Jewish Christians were only approaching people who were Jewish in ethnicity and speaking to them. But, and here's the huge contrast, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch were speaking to the Greeks also. These would be people who were non-Jewish and non-believers, pagans. They began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus now, as we look through here, you're going to see six defining characteristics that this church has. 
We're just going to focus on two of them this, uh, today. But as we are looking at this, there's six of them here. I'll just touch on them all, but we're going to focus on a couple of them. And the first defining characteristic that I want to focus on is this. They had a compelling passion to reach those who were lost. A compelling passion to reach those who were lost. See, as the church scattered, those Jewish Christians began approaching people, but they were only approaching people who were Jewish in ethnicity. And those people would have been very easy to try to reach out to. I mean, they had a common faith already. They knew the Old Testament scriptures. They had, an, they had certain lifestyle issues that were very, very common to one another. They believed mostly the same things. It would have been very easy to do that. And some of those people were responding. But some of them, and it says some men, and they're, name, they're no names, man. We'll never know who these people were until we get to, to eternity. They say to themselves, you know what? There are a lot of people here who are just as lost. There are people who are broken and hurting and distanced from God and disconnected from the very life of God. There are people whose lives are a mess, and they need Jesus too. And so they began to speak to them about Jesus. They were coloring way outside the lines because these people who were pagans were extremely messy. They were not comfortable for these Jewish Christians to be around. They didn't believe the same things. They ate ham sandwiches. They didn't believe in the kosher foods. They all, there was, their, their lifestyles were so totally different. So understand this, that, that they were way outside their comfort zone in reaching these people. These were not the easiest people for them to reach out to. But here's the thing that I love. They preached Jesus. They preached Jesus. And I love the fact that they do that. They're not preaching morality. They're not saying, oh, you need to be a little bit better. You need to, to kind of live this way. You need to stop doing these things. They didn't preach politics. They didn't preach religion. They didn't preach concepts. They didn't preach programs. They didn't preach church. They didn't preach anything except for Jesus Christ, the one who had come for them, had lived among them, who had died on a cross for their sins, the one who had been raised from the dead to give them new life. That was the person that they centered on. They preached Jesus. And wonder of wonders, these people who were pagan outsiders, Greeks and others, they listened. And they began to embrace Jesus Right? Look at verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. I and mean, they're having dynamic impact. Lives are changing, eternities are changing, families are changing, marriages are changing, lifestyles are changing. Jesus is doing an amazing work in the lives of these people. Now, there's some other uh, defining characteristics. We're going to hit them very, very quickly. They come out of verses 22 through 26. And the report of this came to the ears of the church at Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. This is the guy who's later to become the Apostle Paul, right? And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. So just really quickly, some of the other defining characteristics. This place was electric with spiritual change and transformation, right? There's vital, spiritual vitality all over the place. 
They're anchored by a, gift of proven, uh, a team of gifted, proven leaders. So Barnabas doesn't just do this alone. He's already got the foundation laid by these other people that we have no idea who their names are. But Barnabas is a great encourager. Barnabas knows he's a great cheerleader, and you can kind of see it here. He's like, hey, he exhorts them, keep going, man, keep staying devoted. But he knows he's a great cheerleader, but he's not a great teacher. And he realizes that these new believers need some depth. They need to be taught. They need to be taught the scriptures. And so he looks, he thinks to himself, and like, who could I get? Who would, be, who would be really good with people who were both Jewish and those who are Greeks? And then he thinks, bing, Saul. Saul's up in Tarsus. He's a brilliant man. He, he's, he's cosmopolitan in almost every way. He's a Pharisee, but he's lived among the Greeks almost his entire life. So he's like, I'm going to go get him. So he goes and he gets Saul and he brings him to Antioch. And it says, for a whole year they met with the church and they taught, and notice and circle that word taught if you want to. The word is didasco. It means to systematically teach people, step by step, line by line, deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. And they taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So this is the first time they're ever called Christians. Do you know what the word means? It means little Christs. And at first, it was actually a derisive term. It was not a, a, a good term to be called. It was kind of like, I grew up in the 70s. I became a Christian then during the Jesus movement. And they used to call us Jesus freaks. And we're like, we didn't care, you know, because that's what we were. We, we had been sold out to Jesus, right? So we wore that like a badge of honor. Well, they did the very same thing, right? This was not a big deal to them. So there's spiritual depth and devotion among these people. But here's the other one that I want to focus on here. And that starts in verse 27. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agabus, stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This actually did take place in the days of Claudius, by the way, who was the emperor in Rome. So the disciples in Antioch determined every one of them, according to his or her ability, to send financial relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here's the, the final characteristic, and I think it's really important. They unleashed a wave of global care and concern for the world. They unleashed a wave of global care and compassion for the world. See, all of a sudden, the prophets told them, there's going to be this huge need. There's a famine. And they believed the prophetic word, and they're like, okay, we could do something about that. There's a need out there. We could do something about that. So they start pooling their resources, and they decide to send this financial gift with Barnabas and Saul back to Judea, to Jerusalem, right? Here's what I think happened, and if you get nothing else out of what I talk about tonight, I hope this will be it. This catalyzed in them a missional heart and a missional drive. It birthed a focus that they could do something in the lives of other people somewhere else in the world. And it started right here. Here's the interesting thing. Two chapters later, in Acts chapter 13, as Barnabas and Saul and others are there fasting and praying in Antioch, the Holy Spirit says, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work that I've called them to. And they are launched on the first of what will probably be four missionary journeys. We know of at least three that we see in the book of Acts. There's probably one that happened after that with Paul going to Spain. 
But all of a sudden, this church becomes the missional center of the Christian movement in the first century. And this is the church that will change the world, not the church in Jerusalem. While the Jerusalem church had been the epicenter of that movement, a tectonic shift takes place in Acts chapter 11, and you'll almost never hear about the church in Jerusalem again. It shifts over to this church at Antioch. And they become the church that reaches the world. They start planting churches all over the Roman Empire through Paul and Barnabas and Silas and others and Timothy who, who planted churches all over those. And all of a sudden, people who were, were finding Jesus and the whole world was being changed. There's a little known fact you don't know about this church as well that comes from church history. And that's this, that the, the church at Antioch actually pioneers the biblical interpretation method that we use today to study the scriptures. It's called the, the grammatical historical interpretive method. They pioneer it. They were soaked in the scriptures, but they were also saturated by the spirit. They were both deep in their theology and they were wide in their outreach. And here's the rub, because you're gonna see, hear people say this today. You cannot be both things as a church. You're either going to be deep or you're going to be wide. Don't believe that. Don't believe it. You can be both. You can be a church that is both deep and saturated with the scriptures, and you can be a church that is soaked in the spirit and responsive to the needs of the world. You do not have to choose between those two things. You can be both deep and you can be wide. And this church, the church at Antioch in the New Testament, this will be the church that literally changes the world. They were deeply connected to God. They were deeply connected to one another in that church. You can see it. But now they're really connected to the world. They're really connected to the world. And here's what I think is going to be happening to us as a church at Bridgeway. I really believe we are in the process because of what's happened with this pandemic. We've been offered this tremendous gift that we are beginning to reinvent ourselves to be a church that is both deep and wide. We've always been a church that's been very deep. But now we have the opportunity to be a church that will actually widen out its influence and widen out its impact as we think about how do we connect to the world. And we are becoming that. And in that process, we can rediscover our calling as God's people in the world. And here's the side benefit. As you are part of this, you will also begin to rediscover your calling as an individual because God has given every single one of you a unique life message that nobody else can express. God has wired you for it. God has given you the background you have, the experiences you've had. God will use everything that's around that to make you a, a person of influence and impact. You will begin to discover your spiritual gifts. You'll begin to discover how you fit into God's plan. You'll begin to discover how you fit in here at Bridgeway. I mean, it is a great adventure, and I want to encourage you, get ready for this adventure. That's what this weekend is really all about.